Welcome to the Faculty Podcast brought to you by Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., part of a 50-plus year endeavor to train Christian leaders and other pastors in the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Redd. I'm a president here in Teach Old Testament at RTS Washington. I'm joined by Dr. Paul Jean, senior pastor of New City Presbyterian Church and instructor in New Testament, Dr. Tommy Keene, our academic dean and professor of New Testament, and Gray Sutanto, our professor of systematic theology, and sadly still our man in Jakarta waiting to get those visa approvals uh, so that we can get out of this season of pandemic and get Gray here with us in Washington, D.C. Gray, we can't wait to get you here. Definitely cannot wait to get there. And it's such a great time to be working on patience, but uh, we're so grateful to still be able to do this even from abroad. Hey, man, it's so good to see you. It's so just good to see your face and um, can't wait to have you and Indita here. We're starting a new season uh, of the faculty podcast, and we're diving into the topic of the Ten Commandments. And this is a time, of course, when uh, a lot of people are talking about Christian ethics and how we ought to live, how Christians ought to live, both personally, what does personal holiness look like, and what is our public ethic, our public, public holiness look like, and how do we form our lives around our worship and our observance and our belief in the God of Jesus Christ. And as we think about these things, we do want to think about what texts point us in and direct us rather into how we pursue our faith in the world around us. And the Ten Commandments is a common go-to. So we want to start with just talking about the importance of the Ten Commandments and the role that they ought to play in the Christian life. So Gray, start us off there. What's important about the Ten Commandments? Well, I think when we first start to think about the Ten Commandments, we should probably anticipate a common objection for our evangelical listeners, especially who's grown up with the distinction between law and gospel, right? There's this key distinction in the Christian faith that you're not supposed to gain your salvation through the law, but rather you are saved by grace alone, and hence not of a righteousness of your own, not by obedience to the law, but from the grace of Jesus Christ. So we would know that Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. He lived the life that we should have lived. He completely obeyed in our place. And he also died the death that we should have died because we have broken the law and we couldn't satisfy the law. So Jesus Christ had to suffer in our place. This is the doctrine of the penal substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. So given that's in the background, and that's definitely something that's really important to emphasize, lots of people might say, why in the world are we doing the series on the Ten Commandments, right? Because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. Like, aren't we returning to a new sort of legalism? The fancy word is neo-nomianism. This idea that somehow we need to, as Christians, obey the law in order to gain righteousness or something. But um, I think that basic understanding, um, right, misses that in the Bible, there's at least two ways in which the law is talked about. There is the use of the law that can lead to death. This understanding of the law as a way of gaining righteousness would indeed disclose only our inability, our death, our destitute, and we can't follow the law in that sense. But in the Bible, the law is also talked about as a very good thing. Paul, even in Romans chapter 7, where he's talking about um, his inability to follow the law, talks about the law as basically a good thing, that this is something that is disclosed by God for human beings, and this is something that actually reflects the way in which, as Christians, we ought to obey God. This is something that pleases the Father. 
And in fact, this is reflective of his moral law, his natural law. God has created everything with a particular moral order that Christians have to obey. And the Ten Commandments in that respect is just a disclosure of how human beings are naturally supposed to function and hence how Christians are supposed to obey God. And if we believe that the gospel restores nature or grace restores nature, we believe that the gospel empowers us to obey the law, not as a means of gaining our righteousness, but as a means of pleasing our father, right? So that that basic distinction there is incredibly important to kind of just wave off these initial objections, the law as a way of gaining righteousness and the law as reflecting the natural moral order and Christian piety. Maybe briefly here, we can mention the three uses of the law as well. One, there's a civil use of the law where we can consider the law as a way for, for society as a whole in God's common grace to function. If we obey the Ten Commandments, we can actually see a relative peace and harmony in human society. If you don't murder, if you don't lie, if you don't steal, this is a way for the natural human life to, to actually flourish. The second is the Christological or pedagogical use of the law, where the law shows us our need for Jesus because the law discloses to us our inability to follow the law and hence our need for a savior. But the third use is, uh, Calvin would argue, is the primary use of the law. The third use of the law is actually our gratitude to the Father, that we obey the law because it pleases God the Father. It, it pleases uh, God for us to obey him in this way. And so when you take a look at the Heidelberg Catechism and see where the exposition of the Ten Commandments are, it's in that third section. The first section is on misery, our sin, the fall, and so on. The second section is on deliverance. The third section of the Heidelberg Catechism is on gratitude. And that's where the exposition of the Ten Commandments come in. Now that we've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, how can we now follow in his footsteps? How can we now be more conformed to this image and obey the Spirit as the Spirit causes us to be more and more conformed to the image of God? I really like that distinction. You know, we are very afraid in our evangelical culture of of a kind of legalism and and we don't want we certainly don't want to revert to a a, a works righteousness kind of pedagogy or, or or thinking but it's interesting that like in galatians in galatians you know which is paul's kind of preeminent place where he is attacking what we have uh, come to call legalism he ends that book with so follow christ you know obedience is important um, and, he, and the capstone of that discussion is bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And so we've got this interesting connection of, you know, Paul seeing the Ten Commandments, seeing the law of uh, uh, Moses fulfilled in the life and love and resurrection of Christ. And so we are now under this, this new law, which is, which is Christ. And I wonder if our language then of, of like, uh, legalism and works righteousness needs to be refined. I don't know, Paul, maybe you could comment on this pastorally or gray as well, I, uh, theologically, but like legalism is this thing that we're so afraid of. It's not a biblical word, you know, that that word is not used in scripture. It's not a confessional word. You know, our confessions don't use that word. And it seems to function almost as kind of like obedience is bad at times. But Christ calls us to this life of faith, a life under the spirit, cultivating the fruits of the spirit, which is to fulfill the law of Christ, which is itself the fulfillment of the law of Moses. 
you know, thoughts? How do, how do we kind of think about that and carve out that, that while avoiding legalism, nevertheless striving for the obedience of Christ? You know, as, as you two were talking, I was thinking about how Galatians, which, you know, I, I'm working on in this past year, really does seem to not reject the law, but reject a misunderstanding of the law. I think that's a, a important distinction. And um, it's one of, it's like anything else. The law was meant for good. And I think Gray did such a great job of outlining the good. But if we misunderstand it as a means of righteousness, then its good purpose is, you know, invalidated. So, yeah, I've been thinking through that as well, because the more popular distinction is that once I become a Christian, you know, let's not be legalistic. Let's not pay attention to the law. And I think that's to our detriment. So I'm glad we're doing actually this uh, podcast series on Ten Commandments, even if the main takeaway is uh, the law is good. Now, the other thing, you know, I would love to hear what Scott you know, thinks about this, but uh, when people think about Psalm 1, you know, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of wickets and way of sinners and, you know, sit in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. The way I've heard it preached from a lot of more reformed uh, preachers is, hey, here's the law, and uh, at the end of the day, we can't identify with the psalmist because, you know, we don't delight in the law. And therefore, inevitably, the law points us to Jesus, right? And I think that's true in one sense, but I'm wondering if that leads us to have a kind of low view of the law, specifically whether it's possible to delight in the law. Yeah, I think that's a good point. They, you know, Gray mentioned the idea of this coming out of the character of God, and I think that's a key part not just in our theological interpretation of the Ten Commandments, but in the way that they're presented to us. And if you understand them that way, that this is an expression, the law is an expression of God's character, then when we delight in the law or in his revelation, we're delighting in him. And that's how I think we are to understand, we're supposed to understand Psalm 1. And this shows up throughout the Pentateuch as well, the idea of where God puts his law or he puts his word that is where he is i mean if you think about the ark of the covenant which is meant to represent the presence of god with his people what happens the the ten commandments are put within the ark right and that's not just because this is what he requires of you but this is this is registering his character and so when jesus arrives as as the logos as halagos as the word He's the perfect representation of the character of God. He's the perfect representation of the word. And that, that's a complicated, it's a bit of a complicated or difficult discussion. How does the word of God relate to who Jesus is? And there's a, there's a lot written about that. But I think that if we delight in Jesus, then we delight in, his, in the revelation of God. Right. I think about actually what, what Gray's predecessor here at RTS uh, Washington said, uh, uh, Howard Griffith used to, I remember one time sitting in on one of his, his lectures and he said, uh, if God is your enemy, then the law is your enemy. Right. But if God is your friend, then the law is your friend. 
And in Christ, God is our friend. And therefore, we delight in the law because he has removed the curse. And therefore, as those who delight in the law are filled with the spirit of Christ, like him, delighting in the law is like delighting in him. I think that's a very apt comment there, Scott, from Dr. Griffith, um, precisely because love actually looks like obedience. Love looks like cherishing the person that you are in love with, and you want to please the person that you are in love with. In any kind of relationship, especially between the husband and wife, where the love relationship is most intense, right? you want to conform your actions to what pleases your beloved. And in the same way, because we're in covenant fellowship with God, uh, we want to conduct our lives in a way where we would please him. And so it might sound incredibly pious, perhaps, for us to say something like, we want love and not law. We want Christ and not obedience or something like that. But at the end of the day, when we ask the question, what does that love look like? We will actually list out a list of commandments, a list of prescriptions. Yeah, I would. I think that's great. And, and it's saying I want Christ, but not the law in many ways, unless, unless, you, unless you're defining law in a very specific kind of legalistic way. Uh, but saying I want Christ and not the law is kind of like saying, you know, I love my wife, but I don't want to know anything about her, right? You know, it's it, it's you're sort of disconnecting Christ from the character of the divine, and and I think I, I like the language of Heidelberg, the idea of gratitude, because that that it's a response of faith, right? It's a it's a godly thankfulness, but there's also that element, other element of it, that the spirit of Christ indwells us, and so as we grow in the spirit, we will start to love the things that Jesus loves, right? So it's there's a there's a kind of external gratitude aspect to this, and there's also this internal aspect of the spirit loving the law in us, right? That I think is really important as we're thinking about this. It's not just, aren't you grateful, but it's also, aren't you also being conformed to the character of God? You know, as you guys talk about this, I was reminded of a conversation I had recently with a believer. He's in his early thirties. And he said to me, Hey, I really want to love God. I want to live for Jesus. And I've been thinking about what God wants me to do with my life, right? And even in that statement, there's like this spirituality in view that God hasn't revealed it. So I made this suggestion to him. I said, hey, you know, um, well, you know, obviously you're a successful single young professional. Uh, In your situation, why don't you use your extra time and even your extra financial resources to help people? And uh, it was interesting just to see how he brushed that off so quickly. He's like, no, no, no. Like, I want to wait until God reveals to me what I should do, right? (laughs) So like, we're talking here and what we're talking about is not at all like abstract. That's the reality. Like people like claim to, you know, love God and want to live for Jesus. And yet functionally, they seem to have such a low view of his revealed will. And so, yeah, super helpful comments. I think it's also worth mentioning that when we take a look at the reform tradition, our own confessional tradition, we have never been shy to talk about the Ten Commandments. And I think one thing to to add on to Paul's uh, statement there, at the end of the day, we need to do something in our day-to-day lives. We need guidance. We need moral guidance. In other words, we need a, a moral philosophy 
We need to know practically what we ought to do in given situations. We need the wisdom to guide us, right? And I think, again, when we take a look at this idea, this dichotomy between Jesus and the law or love and the law, that kind of moral guidance is not actually going to be given with statements like that. There is no concrete way of living our lives with these pious sounding statements. And again, we like, take a look at the Reformed tradition, Heidelberg Catechism, commenting on the commandments, the Westminster standards as well. And we can take a look at our, our best theologians who've always commented on the Ten Commandments. Of course, Boving's second volume of Reformed Ethics is coming out. And that whole volume is basically a discussion of the Ten Commandments. So in his lectureship, he could ongoingly exposited on the Ten Commandments as an instruction for the moral life. That raises a couple of questions, you know, because on the one hand, we're talking about the law as this kind of timeless revelation of the will of God, something that we're kind of still reflecting on. And we stick on monuments and Bobbing's got stuff on this. And it's like directive for us now. And yet, of course, in its origin, it's very much about Israel. Most expositors, even reformed expositors of the law, note kind of the indicative imperative distinction and that the indicative is kind of the starting point here that we get the the law is, you know, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Israel. And there's almost this kind of therefore, therefore these commandments, therefore keep keep my word. Um, how do we think about like the time? There's there's this timelessness of the law, but what about its timeliness, like its historicity, the fact that this is a code for Israel in the land as she exemplifies her relationship with the father? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, the, the indicative imperative aspect of it, which is so often kind of used for Pauline ethics, you know, is, is definitely clear here. And I, and I've always thought that this is, it's really kind of a covenantal aspect, you know, Israel is one of the only nations that ever refers to its relationship with its deity as a barith, you know, as a covenant. And yet, as we look at the covenant documents, we do notice that they reflect kind of a sort of a mindset or a general way of viewing contractual relationships that we see in the ancient Near East. And those covenants of the ancient Near East that we find in a lot of different you know, countries and amongst different people, so that this would have been very intelligible to Moses and to the Israelites, we expect. But those covenants always follow this kind of similar structure that begins with the statement of the covenant parties in particular, and then also sort of the, 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 the past benevolence or the, you know, the historical blessings that kind of create the groundwork for the relationship. And you would see this, you would see this in, in covenants where the king would say, you, know, you remember when I took care of you when there was a famine or a drought, uh, I was the one who came to your aid when you were almost you know, invaded by those people. You know, and then that's kind of the that's sort of the foundation of the covenant relationship that will come later. And we see this in, in the Bible as well. You notice when Abram is given his covenant in Genesis 15, was the Lord say, I'm the one who brought you out of her. I'm the one who established you here. And we see the same thing here with the covenant of Moses, in particular with the Ten Commandments. It starts off with, I am the Lord, right? I am the Lord who has brought you out of Egypt. In other words, what is he doing? He's identifying himself. And he is reminding them of this great work of redemption that has set them aside as unto him. And that's the foundation of everything that comes afterwards. Why do we live this way? Because our God's character calls us to, 
right? The one, our redeemer God who brought us out of Egypt. And it actually says that quite explicitly, actually. There's, there's a passage in there where in Deuteronomy, at least when the, when the children ask the parents, why do we do all these things? And they say, because the Lord, our God brought us up out of Egypt, you know? And so there is that kind of indicative imperative, your identity as God's people provides the groundwork for your ethical response, the way that you live out, you know, his character as it finds expression in your life. You know, and it's interesting when you look at the Ten Commandments, another interesting thing about it is that they really are set aside, even in the ancient texts, they're set aside from the rest of the law. I mean, we could say that the Mosaic law really is, you know, Exodus, the latter part of Exodus, all the way through to the end of Deuteronomy. And yet in both of the places where the Ten Commandments are given in those texts, so Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, both places set the law apart as the first thing that's given to Moses. And then there's a story in each case about how the people respond to Moses being, you know, before God. And it really does, in both cases, that little narrative sets sets apart the Ten Commandments from everything that comes after so we're not making an artificial division when we look at the Ten Commandments, but we do need to remember that they're not just, uh, you know, they're, they're not just ten laws or words, as uh, as they're called in, in Jewish tradition, the ten words, but they really are sort of a theological treatise on the character of God and what that means for us. So, you know, regarding, um, you know, for our listeners, the idea of the indicative imperative, I just want to encourage uh, just everyone to really meditate on that because that's the dynamic of the Christian life that I think most people, even those that have been trained in seminary, just won't understand, uh, get because day to day, our experience is not, this is what God has done and therefore this is how we should live. You know, God has blessed us and so let's bless the world. That's our daily reality in terms of our upbringing, um, our professional settings is the imperative comes first. You need to perform and then blessing comes. And so as much as people might get it cognitively, I do think it takes the entirety of our lives to really understand this dynamic that we live for God because Jesus has first lived for us. And so this isn't an, an idea that we should ever think we can get beyond but it's an idea that we need to protect and really uh, just plant deep in our hearts. That's helpful. It's also a great way of kind of thinking about the way in which we are under the law of Christ, you know, the, the, and the continuity between that and Israel in the Mosaic period, we've got this story, this God who intrudes into history and rescues Israel from Egypt is, is going to rescue the whole world through Israel through Israel's Messiah, Jesus Christ. And so you see that that indicative doesn't end. God continues to work. He continues to act and redeem a people for himself and place all things under Christ's feet, which then is the motivation for us to obey. You know, because Jesus has done these things, because Jesus sits enthroned and he has invited us as citizens into his heavenly, uh, his heavenly kingdom, therefore, may the law by Christ fulfilled be fulfilled in, in us. And so that, that indicative imperative distinction continues on uh, in, into the New Testament so that we have uh, an even fuller expression of what it means to obey God 
and uh, to, 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 to cultivate that, that relationship that we have with our, our heavenly father. Well, I, yeah, you see that indicative imperative or you know, kind of more broadly covenantal thought process throughout all of scripture. And we see it here in the Ten Commandments, you know, and, uh, you know, there's some disagreement on that as to how we order them. You know, the Reformed Church, uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church, the, you know, the Hebrew Bible itself orders them in such a way that you, you divide the first two, uh, you know, commandments, uh, I am the Lord your God, you shall have no gods before me, and then you shall not make for yourself a graven image. Those are divided into two commandments, whereas in the Roman Catholic and Lutheran tradition, those are one commandment. And um, they actually divide up the, the one about coveting your neighbor, uh, your, your neighbor's property and his wife. They divide that into two different cov- um, you know, laws in order to get uh, Ten Commandments. But you know, in the Hebrew Bible, it's pretty clear, and there's a logic to it, that we have a, a set of three commandments on the front end that identify who God is, right, and, and our worship in response to that. And then there's this kind of transitional, you know, commandment, which is the commandment about the Sabbath day, which really is transitioning from how we respond to God. And in Exodus, it's, it's, it's God as creator that's emphasized. In Deuteronomy 5, it's God as redeemer who's emphasized. And it transitions, though, because, of course, the way we operate in the Sabbath is not just about how we worship God, but it's also how we treat those around us with love and care and giving them rest as well as God gave us rest. And so there's this transition then to kind of interpersonal relationships we have then how do we think about uh, the authority that God has set upon this earth, you know, in the form of the family and, and, and Westminster is right to say that's not just about family, it's not just about mothers and fathers, but it's also about all authority. You know, so you really see this transition, here's the character of God, here's who he is and who he's made you to be, and this is what it means for you in the way that you live your life, you know, and, and, and we've made a really uh, good point. It's not, um, the Ten Commandments do not establish a works righteousness. They don't establish, go live this way, and then maybe you'll be pleasing to the Lord, right? But they say, the Lord has redeemed you. He's created you. Live in this way as a response, you know, and that's a, that's a very important element. It goes all the way back to this ancient manuscript that we find here in these Ten Commandments. Now, Scott, you're Use of the term authority makes me think about why maybe the contemporary believer prefers loving Jesus as the savior versus coming under his lordship. Now, like authority is like this dirty word in church nowadays, and understandably so. You know, people in authority have constantly abused their authority. But I appreciate really the accent on that because I think. Um, one of the most important things that Christians can learn that we don't think about enough is uh, the biblical idea of authority and what it means to live under submission. One of the things I try to encourage people to always think about is that I think biblically, everyone should always be under authority in some shape or form. And the Ten Commandments are great because they remind us that as Jesus, he calls us friend and he's our big brother and all of the above, but he is the Lord, you know, and that's why I think renewing an appreciation for the Decalogue, right, can serve our spiritual vitality. Yeah, and we probably will get more specific in that when we get get to like uh, honor your father and mother. That's where the larger catechism puts all of that material of, you know, kind of relative authority, your authority under God, 
what that looks like in the various relationships that sustain us. It's, you know, it gets wonderfully specific in that, you know, in that regard. And it's kind of a, a reminder of what Scott and Gray were saying earlier, that here is the whole of the ethical life comprehended in 10 words, in, t- in 10 statements. It can get very specific into, you know, into what's what I do in relationship to my what with my wife, what I do in relationship to my children and uh, submitting to my boss and all that kind of stuff. It can get wonderfully specific. And then at the same time, we can zoom out and see that all of this is simply fulfilling our love for Christ and his love for us. All of this is essentially uh, love God and, and, and love neighbor. And so the Ten Commandments give us the breadth and depth of that material, but in, in, in the space of ten, 10 imperatives, which is quite incredible. It's interesting, too, you know, people talk a lot about the sort of communitarian aspects of the Old Testament or corporate aspects versus the more individual aspects of the New Testament. But this is one of those cases where the Old Testament is actually quite individualistic. You know, it's interesting. This is, this is given to the people as a whole, and yet each commandment is uh, singular in its command. You see immediately following the Ten Commandments in Deuteronomy, for instance, in Deuteronomy 5, there's this command to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and strength, and then a very kind of personal application of that. And I think that's in a way a summary of the whole of the law. So, uh, and Jesus Jesus affirms this with his interlocutors in the New Testament that this is kind of a summary of the law, and yet it's very kind of individual. It really is talking not merely about sort of a, a corporate righteousness, though I think there's that. There's clearly elements to that, but it's also talking about personal holiness, like how you're supposed to live yourself from day to day. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at other ancient laws like Hammurabi, for instance, you know, we, we don't have evidence that that was used. We don't have evidence of, you know, legal arguments that are citing Hammurabi, as you might expect. And yet what's interesting about the Ten Commandments and, and the whole of the law is that we have this whole tradition following it of these lawyers, you know, these prophets who are applying the Ten Commandments and applying the Mosaic Law into the lives of Israel, of Israelites individually, but also Israel as a nation. And that continues up till the time of Jesus. Jesus himself and the New Testament prophets and apostles will cite the law and apply it into the lives of the people around them, uh, even Christians, you know. And, and so this is not just a law that's meant to be a kind of a philosophical treatise or a literary exercise, but this is actually a law that is a, a kind of timeless expression of the character of God and what God calls his people to. So we're talking about the, the law as a, you know, as this timeless, uh, useful reflection for Christians. We hope to engage that in in our own context what are some good uh readings i mean the westminster larger catechism is making the rounds as a great short compact commentary on the law gray paul anything else scott anything else that you can think of as as we for for those of us who need to do some reading on the subject yeah i can't emphasize enough how important the westminster larger catechism is and even westminster confession of faith chapter 19 on the law itself is is one of the best statements in all of theological history, perhaps on the purpose of the law, the content of the law and so on, which I think anticipates 
the content in Westminster Larger Catechism. So definitely begin there as we are going through the series. But also, I want to, again, plug in Herman Boving's Reformed Ethics, Volume 2, is coming out, it, and it covers precisely the Ten Commandments. Now, again, the Reformed Ethics is not published in, in Boving's original time. It's actually mostly his lecture manuscripts, and they were not they were not as polished as the Reformed Dogmatics, but still you have very useful material there as Boving codifies so much of the Reformed tradition on this. So look out for that publication coming in November, I believe. I'd also say there's um, there's some great resources you know, just from Old Testament studies. I mean, uh, one of Meredith Klein's earliest commentaries and honestly, probably one of his better uh, contributions is uh, the Treaty of the Great King, where he's working through the book of Deuteronomy. But he he really um, focuses on the Ten Commandments as sort of a formative aspect of that. And it's, it's not actually a very long book. And uh, I'd encourage, particularly for those of you who are more a little more theologically inclined, um, for a good introduction, uh, if you look up Bruce Walkie's uh, Theology of the Old Testament, he has a wonderful section uh, called The Gift of the Old Covenant, where he works through the Ten Commandments. In a very, it's a very good introductory, but also deep and somewhat profound analysis of how the Ten Commandments work in the Old Testament text. Paul on John Frame? Yeah, I mean, I found for the lay members, uh, John Frame's um, volume on Christian ethics, which is based on the Ten Commandments, to be a good, readable uh, resource. He also has such a great bibliography that can point people to other great resources as well. But I mean, Tommy mentioned this and Gray as well. The larger catechism is so worth reading because it's compact, but it's also concrete. Like it's not theoretical. It really teases out what obedience to these uh, commandments might look like here and now. Well, thanks, everybody. This has been a wonderful discussion of the Ten Commandments as a whole, and I look forward to coming back together next week to talk about the First Commandment, Um, and I look forward to that conversation with you all. For everyone else, if you would like to learn more about Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., please go to our website, rts.edu forward slash Washington. And you can learn more about us there. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe the fat to the faculty podcast on any of the podcast apps that you use. That helps us get the word out about what we're doing here, not only on the podcast, but also about RTS. It's been great to be with you all this week. Until next week, take care. Okay. That was great. <laughs> I got <laughs> she want me to do the last part again about you could just like be short about RTS. You could just say learn more about RTS. You know, our Are you upset RTS. that I mentioned you? I'm not upset that you mentioned me. Um you look kind of upset. <laughs> I was just I, I like staying behind, you know. You want to stay behind the scenes. Okay, well, um, you can cut that part out. Do you want to just cut that part out? Sure. What do you? Yeah.
I mean, I think, yeah, I go to rts.edu forward slash Washington. And that's what it is, right? It's not Washington, D.C. It's just Washington. Yeah. So you could cut it from there. You could also say, and thanks to our executive producer, Timo Sazo, cut it, cut there out, everything after that. Because I think I paused for a second. Say who is okay. also our dean of the yeah. I'll, I'll do, uh, I'll do the chopping, chopping and. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, let me, I'll say it all. I see you don't want to chop it up. Is that what you're saying? All right.